On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, discuss how to prepare for your annual board meetings, review annual mandatory education requirements, and provide a reminder about periodic hospital reporting. In our focus segment, we discuss some common citations for Triple HC and ACHC. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsor, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights. MedServe, which is the only digital narcotic cabinet specifically designed and priced for surgery centers, helping standardize processes and compliance, eliminate paper logs, and prevent drug diversion. And Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 211 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for January 14th, 2024, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, co-host of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We would like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. Joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry, and he is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. I noticed that you hesitated when we when you mentioned the date that uh, of this recording. <laughs> uh, this is what we refer to as take two. Yes, uh, we recorded this indeed on January fourteenth originally, mm-hmm. and the whole uh, thing. Some somebody <laughs> forgot to hit the button for your microphone. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, Rosie, the, the <laughs> dog, but. Uh, Unfortunately, that appears yeah. to have been my mistake, and uh, the recording uh, was kind of one-sided. So we um, mm-hmm. we have to re-record it. Hopefully, it'll be as good as that initial one was. But Sue, welcome back. It, Thank you. Uh, we missed you here. Of course, we had to bring in a guest co-host. Mm-hmm. Katie Pearson, who uh, yep. did a good job of filling in, and uh, we really appreciated that she could help out. Sue's been out on family medical leave. Paid um, family leave. Just helping my, my daughter with her daughter. She had a new baby and just had um, a little longer recovery, so 
taken some time to help her out with that and spend some time in the hospital yeah. with her when I needed So we've been to. kind of busy in the house lately, but uh, uh, last week we did have a very successful credentialing conference, the Credentialing, Privileging, and Peer Review Conference, which was a, a day-and-a-half conference we put on. It was our second most successful conference uh, ever, and for those uh, that were not able to attend it, uh, the on-demand version of it should be available in about two to three weeks. Uh, we are running a little bit behind on that because the person who does a lot of that editing, of course, is the uh, <laughs> the young lady who had a baby uh, mm-hmm. just before Christmas. And so during the conference, uh, we had some wonderful interaction with all of the attendees. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was probably, in my view, one of the, the most interesting conferences we had. A lot of so. questions that were very relevant that really, uh, uh, I think, made it relevant for the, the people that attended. Uh, but one of the discussion items that came up is uh, the, the possibility of doing a quality improvement and risk management conference. So we are already working on that. Uh, hopefully we'll have it. We actually have a target date of April 5th, but no problem on that. We'll see if we can pull that together. And that will be one of our micro-conferences similar to this and the conferences we did in November, which will be a full-day conference focused on a particular topic, in this case, quality assurance, performance improvement, and risk management. And we also had an interesting conversation about an anesthesia conference. Now, I'm not sure this would be a full-day conference, but mm-hmm. there are so many issues coming up with anesthesia, uh, not only the anesthesia crisis, but what organizations are are doing to try to uh, deal with uh, the difficulty in finding mm-hmm. uh, anesthesia providers. I was on a, on a meeting earlier today where one of my colleagues was telling me that a place in uh, outside of Philadelphia, uh, this is anecdotal, but apparently a place outside of Philadelphia had to... Uh, shut down operations because they were unable to find mm-hmm. anesthesia providers. Not surprising, though, with the shortage. Right. It's getting really difficult. Well, and, and the reason it came up during the uh, credentialing conference is because there are a number of things you have to do when you're credentialing anesthesia providers. Uh, for example, with a CRNA, you know, usually that involves supervision by the physician provider, and that has to be included in the uh, anesthesia credentialing and privileging. So a lot of issues on that. We're, we're still working on that. Not sure where that's going to head. We do have two upcoming boot camps, the administrator's boot camp. The, the live virtual conference portion of that will be January 23rd to the 26th, so that's next week. And this will be uh, starting our fourth year of doing this conference. I can't believe we've been doing it four years. Our boot camps now over, have over 250 graduates, by far the, the most graduates from any program of its type. And we do have our business office manager conference coming up. It's our second one. We did one in August. We decided to move it to March uh, just to make it a little more available to people. It turns out I don't think that uh, that August was the best month to hold that type of a conference. And that's going to be March 12th through the 15th. And we're doing that in conjunction with Coding Compliance Management and our dear friend Christina Benton. Sue, I think we have some recent news we have to get caught up on. Yes, we do. So there was an article in OR Manager on December 18th about the difference in colonoscopy fees between hospitals and ASCs. This data was gathered from the federal rule requiring transparency and coverage, which requires insurers to publish in-network rates for covered services. The hospital fees were approximately 55% higher than the ASC rates. So the average hospital bill for facility fees for colonoscopies was 1530 For colonoscopies with biopsy, hospital facility fees were 1760 and 1761 for colonoscopy with removal of polyps. Um, the same fees at ASCs were $989, $1,034, and $1,030 respectively, or between 54 and 61% lower. So I know that we always know we're a good value, but that just really 
it's a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is from an OR manager article. We'll provide a link to it. But it is uh, yet more evidence of the importance of uh, shifting uh, cases, procedures into the ambulatory surgery setting, particularly things like uh, colonoscopies and uh, endoscopies, which are you know pretty commonplace now in an ambulatory surgery setting. And Sue, I saw an article in Becker's ASC about the Stark Law. We haven't really talked about the Stark Law in a while, and um, this article talked about where it stands and where it's headed. And we'll provide a link again to the article. But just a couple takeaways that I had from the article. And before we get into it, I do want to remind you that these are legal issues, and we need to make sure that you have a good healthcare attorney on retainer to deal with any of these issues that might impact your organization. Let's start with a reminder of what the Stark Law is. It's a law which prohibits physicians from making referrals to some Medicare-certified healthcare facilities if the physician or certain family members are owners or have some other type of financial relationship to the center, such as an employment arrangement. Uh, please read the article, but I thought I'd note a couple takeaways, particularly as the new year begins. Perhaps something to do just to check on uh, in with, within your own organization. The Stark Law is what we call a strict liability statute, meaning that you can be found in violation of the law even if you didn't intend to violate the law. This is one of those classic classic ignorance of the law does not excuse you from following the law situations. Now, the National Law Review noted that violators could potentially face a $15,000 fine for each violation of the law plus additional civil penalties of up to $100,000. We want to encourage administrators to make sure their owners are aware of the potential penalties for these violations. And of course, make sure that a lawyer looks into all of your partnership, the LLC, and other agreements involving your owners and other providers. CMS is getting very aggressive about enforcement, and this is uh, to combat healthcare fraud. It's one of the administration's highest priorities right now in the area of fraud. Some areas of recent focus during these investigations have especially been uh, compensation arrangements. For example, medical director or other compensation arrangements with owners and providers. They want to make sure that they are not based on volume or referrals. So uh, you need to make sure those are arm's length arrangements, uh, financial arrangements, and again, make sure a lawyer is involved in that. And recently, the FDA posted a voluntary recall from Lighters Health recalling IV bags of vancomycin, phenylephrine, and fentanyl due to potential for superpotency, as they could contain twice the labeled amount of the drug. There may have been an issue with the equipment used to autofill the IV bag, so they may not have moved along when they should have and gotten that second um, dose put like in there. double the dose, probably. Yes. Yeah. yep. There is much more information on the FDA website. We're going to put a link in the show notes um, that really detail those the risks that you would be facing and listing the specific lot numbers so you can check to see if you have any of those. And an article in Nurse Journal from November discussed CRNA use and supervision. They noted that more than 80% of anesthesia providers in rural communities are CRNAs, and many rural hospitals provide CRNA-only anesthesia care. As of the end of 2022, 23 states did not allow CRNAs to practice independently or they implemented supervision requirements that were just too complicated or difficult to follow with the shortage of providers. Um, outpatient care centers make up 23% of CRNA's employment while only 3% of anesthesiologists 
um, work in out, outpatient care centers. So this is an area that we really want to keep a very close eye on right now. I know there's a lot of uh, proposals for changes in the mm-hmm. regulations in, in various states, those states that do not allow independent mm-hmm. uh, practice of CRNAs. So we'll have to keep a very close eye on that as this could be a potential solution to our anesthesia shortage. Though, to be truthful, there's a shortage of CRNAs also, so mm-hmm. it, it, mm-hmm. it don't, will only help us, but it, it's not necessarily a solution to our total problem. It's not necessarily the answer. And according to Becker's ASC review from December 8th, Florida, Colorado, and Delaware are working to remove restrictions on CRNA's independent practice. And U.S. Representatives Sam Graves from Missouri and Jared Huffman from California have reintroduced the Save America's Rural Hospitals Act, which would expand the scope of practice for certified registered nurse anesthetists, allowing them to work without physician supervision. Now, the AMA is opposing these changes, citing the shorter training periods and lack of residency requirements in a CRNA's education. So they're concerned about patient safety. So we'll put a link to both of these articles. So this is an evolving uh, issue, and again, mm-hmm. one of those reasons that we really are considering uh, considering a conference to uh, discuss this at a mm-hmm. national level. We really need, I think, some good studies and just find out whether patient safety is affected, you know, if there are certain settings that are better for CRNAs. You know, just really get some good guidance on this. I agree. I agree. Uh, So it is the beginning of the year, and I thought that we might want to talk about some of those things we do at the beginning of each year that are usually done on an annual basis. Let's start with uh, that CMS requirement that you send a letter to the hospital, your local hospital, every two years. Uh, Talking about your existence, your presence, this is a change that was made in the latter part of the Trump administration when they were trying to reduce regulations and, in effect, actually created another regulation or regulatory requirement. And the regulation states that the ASC must periodically provide the local hospital with written notice of its operations and patient population served. And in the interpretive guidelines, this was what was stated. Uh, You need to provide information concerning the ASC's operations. For example, this would include the ASC's name, address, hours of operation, administrator's name, and contact information for any follow-up questions. And the patient population served by the ASC, which would include but is not limited to your surgical specialties and whether the ASC sees adults and or pediatric patients. And they noted that the written notice may be provided to the local hospital electronically or through the mail. And the ASC should maintain copies of these notices to demonstrate that they are providing such notices periodically as required by the regulations. So if you haven't sent that out uh, in the last two years, it's time to uh, draft that letter and send it off. And uh, truthfully, I I would imagine most of these hospitals, given how large most hospitals are, uh, probably won't even notice the email or the letter. But uh, Mm -hmm. you do want to keep a copy of it just to prove that uh, that you – you did what the regulation requires. Let's also talk about what goes on at our annual meetings and uh, just a couple you know, guide, guidelines for those meetings. Uh, first of all, you want to appoint your officers for the year, the officers of the board. Uh, you want to make sure you appoint all of your committee members for the next year. And then there's various positions within your organization that surveyors are looking for. We want to know uh, that you know the governing body has delegated responsibility various positions. Now, the regulations don't necessarily require you to do this on an annual basis, but it is often difficult for you to go mm-hmm. back to the board meeting where you made these appointments in the past. And, and this is particularly important just so that you know when, when there's turnover, and unfortunately there's been a lot of turnover lately, uh, but when you have turnover, you know uh, exactly what positions that individual who was left was appointed mm-hmm. to, especially, Sue, since there's an awful lot of crossover here. We're going to list, mm-hmm. I don't know, I didn't have put a number here, but a good 10 or 12, <laughs> uh, maybe 15 positions, and, and in some small 
smaller centers, you know, there's only two or three people that make up those positions. Let's uh, let's just go down the list. Uh, and again, some of these positions might have slightly different titles. Uh, we'll just give you the you know the most common titles. So the first one is uh, administrator, then clinical manager, uh, the RN, uh, often a director of nursing is the title, the medical director. And if this is an anesthesiologist, you're going to have to have somebody that's also going to be like the director of surgical services or medical services. Um, you're going to have to have an anesthesia director, a business office manager, a director of quality improvement and risk management, an infection control coordinator, an education coordinator, a laboratory director, a pharmacy director, a radiology director if that's applicable, a safety officer, a risk manager, compliance officer, a privacy and security officer, a medical director, a medical records director, or often it's called a health information systems director. A tissue bank compliance officer, if that's applicable, mm-hmm. and a laser safety officer, if that's applicable. And as you mentioned, one person could do quite a few of these roles, and especially in the smaller centers, you'll see that. But be sure that, like say it's your, your director of nursing, that is also your QAPI coordinator. Make right. sure that they have job descriptions for all of those For all those positions. Roles. That's a very good point, right? Uh, also, on an annual basis, you got to do reviews of various uh, uh, programs. Like uh, you have to review all of your policies and procedures and all of those plans, like infection control, risk management, safety, etc. Uh, you're gonna have to. Oh, big recommendation! We had a huge conversation about the medical staff bylaws during the mm. credentialing conference, since uh, it, uh, the, the medical staff bylaws have a, a big impact on the way you do credentialing, privileging, and peer review. So, do review your medical staff bylaws. One thing we realized during the uh, well, we've realized it for a while is that people often don't look back to these bylaws, which are mm-hmm. often written at the very beginning of the operation. Yeah. So uh, take a very close eye out at these bylaws, review to make sure that they uh, match up with what your actual practice is. For example, I just read one this afternoon, Sue, where it talked about a credentialing committee, and there is no con- credentialing mm-hmm. committee for this organization. Um, so be very, very careful. And also follow the rules with regard to revising the medical staff bylaws because they often are not um, as easy to change as uh, as the policies are. I um, also want to talk a little bit about annual mandatory staff training. Remember, on an annual basis, uh, you do need to do staff training, mandatory training. There's a lot of different areas you have to cover. And I've noticed that a lot of centers are starting to use these online training programs. I'm not going to talk about what's provided in those programs. I, I want to talk specifically about those things that those online programs cannot provide you, which are facility-specific, organization-specific issues. Um, so, uh, for example, the infection control program, you can't use one of these national organizations unless you upload your own training materials for your for your infection control program. Fire safety, the same thing. You, uh, you know, your organization is going to have you know different types of fire detection systems, fire suppression systems, different exit pathways. All of those things have to be in an educational program that you have designed specifically for your center. Same thing with emergency preparedness. Of course, your center might be very different than a center in a different part of the country. Uh, you have to talk about how you would transfer a patient to the hospital, um, the process. You also talk about code blue, uh, malignant hypothermia. And then you have to review the various quality improvement, peer review, 
you know, programs that everybody needs to know about. And another important thing, don't forget that your providers need this education also. So you need to have, demonstrate in your credentialing file that all of the people that have been credentialed to provide prof- procedures at your center have had that same education program that's mm-hmm. specific, you know, for things that are specific to your organization. So as we enter the new year, I thought we would take a, a look at some of the common citations. And uh, recently, uh, C and uh, ACHC have uh, issued uh, some reports that showed some of those common citations. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll review some of the common citations from various accreditation organizations. With the rapid changes occurring in the ASC industry, the exodus of experienced ASC administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers, there is an increasing demand for quality leadership education. That's where our industry-leading boot camps come in. In 2021, we introduced our administrator boot camp and the director of nursing boot camp, and in 2023, the business office manager boot camp. These boot camps have become the industry standard for ASC leadership training, and with over 225 graduates, lead the industry in mentored virtual training. Live virtual training for the administrator boot camp occurs every January and July, and the director of nursing boot camp is October and May. Our new business office manager boot camp will continue in the spring of 2024. There are also on-demand versions of each boot camp for those who simply can't attend the live virtual programs. All boot camps, including the on-demand boot camps, include access to resources, membership in the ASC Central Patron Program, copies of John's latest books, access to credentialing, conditions for coverage, and other recorded training programs, and of course our regular drop-in Zoom sessions where you can ask questions and interact with other patron and boot camp members. Our programs also include AEU credits for those that are CASC certified. Our programs are comprehensive and taught by the nation's leading ASC experts and are designed for all levels of leadership, from experienced leaders who want to enhance their skills or pass the CASC exam, or those who are new to the industry and wish to learn how to run an ASC. For more information about our live, virtual, and on-demand programs, visit ASC Central at asc-central.com. Or you can call us at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ASCPodcast.com for more information. So periodically we like to discuss the various uh, citations that organizations are likely to run into during surveys. And uh, fortunately for us, the C issues an annual report called the C Quality Roadmap. We'll uh, provide a link in our show notes for you to be able to download it. It is free. Um, uh, you just have to provide your email address and information, um, but it's free both organizations that are already accredited by HHC and those that are looking to become accredited. And I really mm-hmm. recommend you look at it. It's an excellent document, really, really one of the best summaries that are available for all the accreditation organizations on, on the activities. And for the report uh, that was just issued, it represents 1,749 surveys from organizations, including ambulatory surgery centers, OBSs, and primary care settings. So we, of course, are really only going to talk about those things that apply to ambulatory surgery centers. And we should note, we're not going to talk about 
all of the findings, just mm-hmm. the ones that were really, uh, I think, uh, above 50% of the, the centers, right, or mm-hmm. very close to that. Yep, and we thought probably the most useful way of doing it is we've got the surveyor findings and, and their hints for compliance. Right, and, and as way, well as yeah. our own observations here. Mm-hmm. So, Okay, so for emergency preparedness and drills is the first section. Um, some of the findings are the drills were not scenario-based, which we see that a lot. Um, drills are not completed on a quarterly basis, and drills were not consistently evaluated. And I find this in mock surveys, too, that mm-hmm. often uh, organizations just, you know, pull a fire alarm. Or do, they don't even pull a fire alarm. Uh, everybody exits the building, and then, um, you know, that that's their drill. Well, all drills have to be scenario-based. You have to create a scenario act out that scenario, document that scenario, and uh, make sure that you do one every quarter. And of course, we're talking about both fire drills and emergency drills. And HHC provided a couple compliance hints. They recommended that you create a template form or a checklist for drills that include who is participating, a description of the scenario, and an evaluation of the drill and steps to improve. And it's important to note that we expect, surveyors expect to see an evaluation. We don't really want to see you saying, oh, everything went well, because that's not the purpose of a drill. A drill is, the purpose of a drill is to, uh, to, to push the limits, to be able to identify things that might not actually come up during uh, the average fire uh, mm-hmm. so that when people actually do encounter a real fire, they're really prepared for it. Mm-hmm. And I think, as you said, about pushing a little bit more. So if you're finding you're having a difficult time finding anything that went wrong or, you know, really keeping people engaged, then switch it up. Make it a more difficult thing. Make it right. a fire that happened, you know, during a procedure. Have it happen in a different room or when, you know, just just throw some little twists in there that make that challenge people so that's, that that's you know right. you can really learn something from these. They also recommend that you have an impartial party view emergency drills while they are being performed and conduct the evaluation for you. And Sue, I you know I do want to kind of put a pitch in here. Those uh, that are members of our patron program and members of our patron program and our premium access programs, uh, both of which are available on asc-central.com, have access to this large database of fire drill scenarios and, and what we call kits. So they provide you a Microsoft Word document mm-hmm. that you can use to fill in to document that drill, as well as a lot of different scenarios, including, I believe, a scenario for World War III and the I- zombie apocalypse. So. I think our, our director of operations loves to get creative with these things. Yeah, I, so. I'm not sure about the zombie apocalypse, but mm-hmm. yeah, World War III, given everything that's going on right now, mm-hmm. that might not be a bad one to prepare for. And then uh, the second area, the second highest area was in credentialing, privileging, and peer review, which, of course, uh, was the whole reason that we did the conference mm-hmm. last week on that. So uh, those of you that attended that conference or, or intend to, uh, to do it on demand uh, might find a, a lot of information to comply with these findings. So they found that there were often missing reappointment supporting documentation or contracted providers did not have credentialing or privileging documentation. Files contained expired documents. Privileges often were not explicit to date specific time frame. In other words, the specific dates from, mm-hmm. you know, not not just the months, but the specific dates, and making sure that they don't go over the time frame that had been established in your policies. Mm-hmm. And allied health professionals often were not privileged by the governing body. And they noted that there were situations in which privileges were approved for the supervision of an allied health provider. However, the organization doesn't use allied health providers. And they also noted that um, that in a number of circumstances, privileges were approved for procedures that were actually not 
even on the approved procedure list or even performed at the center. So a good note here is just make sure that every every situation in which you're granting privileges are a situation that actually exists in your organization. And then sometimes the privileges were missing for procedures that are being performed. So if you're ever adding things or even just changing, you know, using a different type of laser or something like that, uh, different levels of sedation, you have to make sure you add that. No peer references were provided on initial application. No formal ongoing process for peer review was established. And no privileges for supervision of anesthesia services sometimes were found. So those were all things that we talked quite a bit during our conference. And uh, definitely peer references was a big topic of discussion. And also uh, whether you really need them for uh, reaccreditation, which generally, unless your policy states it or your accreditation organization requirement requires that generally peer references are not required because you are required to do peer review. And HCCC made a couple, uh, gave some hints for compliance. They wanted to suggest that you keep up to date with time-sensitive information, for example, a state license, DEA registration, medical liability coverage, et cetera. Um, they want to include, make sure that you include contract and allied health providers in the credentialing process. I should note that it doesn't mention it here, but also making sure that your residents who provide direct patient care are also uh, privileged in your organization, go through a credentialing process, albeit a, a shortened one. Uh, they also suggest that you keep explicit written procedures for requests and approvals to follow those consistently. When This is when an outside organization requests information from you about the privileges of one of your providers. And of course, include a specific time period for which the privileges are granted um, and documentation of initial privileging and reappointments. Um, so that should be in your board minutes. This documentation should be date specific and must also include which privileges are requested and which privileges are granted. I can't tell you how many times I see this as a violation, either during a mock survey or mm -hmm. when I'm actually doing a survey. And you want to ensure records include the documentation of specific privileges. Uh, for example, you know, levels of anesthesia, the type of ultrasound and laser equipment that you're going to use, and, of course, supervision. Mm -hmm. So it can't just say, you know, you're going to be doing arthroscopies correct, or whatever. Correct. And, of course, uh, something that I found interesting here is communicate to staff the privileges granted to mm -hmm. the providers. Uh, make sure that uh, all of your staff know this, and, 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 you know, particularly the staff in the operating room. And the staff that are involved in scheduling, mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to schedule a case or, uh, or be in the middle of a case when you realize that that provider didn't have privileges to do that. And ensure the peer review process is an ongoing review of all providers and shouldn't be limited just to incident-based review. And you want to expand the peer review criteria to include review of clinical records as well as ongoing clinical care and incorporate other items such as infections, uh, hospital transfers, adverse event rates, patient satisfaction survey results, and compliance with medical staff rules and regulations as well as clinically based outcomes criteria decided by the providers themselves as part of that peer review process. So we talked about that a lot during our conference, but uh, as we uh, discussed, there are quite a number of situations in which these are issues for uh, during surveys. And under medication reconciliation, some of the findings were that it was not being performed or not consistently performing medication reconciliation. Um, no notation upon discharge whether or not to continue the medications. Medication lists were sometimes not accurate or were not complete. And the medication lists sometimes contained uh, misspellings or the wrong dosages or didn't note the times that the medications are to be taken. And multiple medication sheets 
were found sometimes, but the reconciliation process was not identified. And here were some compliance hints. They suggested that you determine one consistent method for documenting medications and incorporate into your policies and procedures and staff training. And if you have an EHR, make documentation and medication reconciliation a required field in the EHR system. And if, if you're still using paper documentation, use one consistent form for medication reconciliation that the patient reviews and receives a copy at discharge. And of course, lastly, a big trend here is make sure you train your staff on medication Mm -hmm. reconciliation requirements. And next was allergy documentation, which really was a lot like the medication reconciliation. You just said often it wasn't accurately documented. They may be missing the sensitivity information or missing reactions. Um, It may not have been updated consistently or it was documented in multiple areas which is going to increase your risk of errors. So they just want you to make sure you're consistent with where you put those allergies so everybody can find it. If you have an EHR, make sure that um, the reactions and the sensitivities are required fields. With paper documentation, use one consistent form. Make sure it's always in that same place so people know right where to find it. And, of course, train your staff on allergy documentation requirements. And moving on to pharmaceutical safety, other findings were that there was no list of high alert medications, no uh, process to identify high alert medications, uh, that confused drug names were not labeled, uh, the drugs were not labeled, uh, and there was no monitoring activities for monitoring high alert medications or medications with confused drug names. So uh, usually we suggest working with a pharmacy consultant that can help you identify these drugs and post signs. And they do recommend that you maintain a list of, well, not recommend, they require you to maintain a list of high alert medications used in the facility and keep them near all of the dispensing locations. And you want to segregate and label high alert medications for easy identification. And, of course, you want to train your staff to minimize medication errors by alerting them to high alert medication and confused drug names used in your facility. And next was infection prevention and control program. Some of the findings were no formal infection control risk assessment was documented. No active surveillance for hand hygiene or safe injection practices was present. That surprises me. I feel like that's kind of everybody sort of does that. Um, The rubber septum of the medication vials and IV hub were not always cleaned with alcohol prior to needle insertion. Hand hygiene was not consistently performed per policy. Open vials were not labeled. The organization does not have the manufacturer's instructions for use available to reference, and that's a big one. You always have to have that for everything available in your organization. For, yeah, yeah for all your supplies equipment and equipment. Or, yeah. Yeah. No national guidelines reference for sterilization procedures. Manufacturer's instructions for use were not followed for disinfecting agents. Um, no policy was present for cleaning, disinfection, or sterilization. Biological testing was not completed per national guidelines. Hinged instruments were not sterilized in the open position. And uh, AAAC provided some hints for compliance. Of course, uh, you want to implement an active infection control risk assessment and surveillance process. So it's not uh, just enough to, I mean, we have a problem making sure that you even do the risk assessments, uh, quite okay. frankly. Uh, but many of the risk assessments that I've reviewed over the last couple of years haven't had any conclusions. So somebody just filled out the uh, uh, the columns and came up with a conclusion but didn't do anything to determine what uh, changes need to be made mm-hmm. to your infection control program. So it's important that you not only do an annual risk 
assessment, infection control risk assessment, but that, that you also develop your infection control program and goals and objectives for the next year based upon that. And of course, you they suggested that you utilize the standard CDC, WHO, a, and APIC, and other resources for uh, hand hygiene guidance, uh, and also make sure that you use IPC training and competency testing upon hire and at least annually thereafter when there's an identified need. And it's also important to make sure that you're uh, looking into safe injection practices uh, as part of your surveillance activities using uh, different staff. Uh, this is true both for hand hygiene and safe injection practices. Uh, to have uh, different observers do this on a regular mm-hmm. basis within mm-hmm. your organization. And provide up-to-date manufacturer's instructions for use on all equipment and instruments for easy staff retrieval. And they had mentioned that above, too, that that's also when you want to do more training because, you know, sometimes you just change one little thing, but, you know, somebody has to really read those instructions and make sure that the timing or whatever else hasn't changed. Yeah, and, and, you know, that's the reason we do surveillance activities. Mm -hmm. You know, if the surveillance activities indicate a low compliance, then that's an issue. And I guess this is a good point to, to mention. So, so often we see the surveillance activity worksheets coming back saying 100% compliance. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really not very accurate in many cases. And especially if a surveyor comes in, like if you're saying you'd have 100% compliance with hand hygiene, I got to tell you, as a surveyor, I'm going to be looking very closely at your operations. Mm-hmm. And the minute I see one situation, and I'll tell you, often I see a lot of situations yeah. uh, in that scenario, uh, then I'm not going to believe that really, uh, that any real surveillance was going mm-hmm. on. You either have you know, need somebody a little bit tougher. Sometimes people just really feel bad and they don't want to write somebody up, but they don't have to put their name. They just have to do that. Or you have somebody doing it that is always the same person. Maybe they're in leadership. And whenever they come near, everybody kind of steps to it and and does the Right. right thing. But you really want to make sure you're getting an accurate picture of that. And, of course, you want to train your staff on the national sterilization guidelines, and you want to observe and enforce safe injection practice guidelines, especially with multi-dose vial storage administration and labeling. That's been a, a huge issue lately. Remember, multi-dose vials have to be drawn up outside of the patient care area. And I think we've talked about that in previous mm-hmm. episodes quite a bit. You want to review the HHC Safe Injections Practices Toolkit. HHC has these wonderful toolkits that are available to all mm-hmm. uh, organizations that uh, are accredited, and you really need to look at that. Now, we should note as we get into the Accreditation Commission for he- uh, for Healthcare, the ACHC uh, re- findings, that we're not going to duplicate those things. There were, there were quite a bit of crossover, of course, as you mm-hmm. can imagine. We thought we would mention some of those findings or uh, survey issues that ACHC brought out that uh, were not identified in HHC. And, of course, with both of these areas, we're just summarizing. So, right. you know, we're not claiming we're not going through all showing the findings, every single right. thing. Hey, so for personnel records, 41% of the centers were cited for something in personnel records. Some of those findings were um, individual files were lacking evidence of licensure verification for licensed personnel. Evidence of an initial orientation and of competency validation during orientation. An annual appraisal, annual competencies, or required annual training. Evidence of initial required training. 
and um, position description. And I know, as I mentioned earlier, make sure that if one person holds several um, positions that they have signed job descriptions for all of those. Right. And I did note that personnel files of contract personnel also have to include evidence of training and or periodic evaluation, which we refer to as uh, peer review here. So um, again, these are talking about actual employees of the organization, but moving on to contract employees uh, or medical staff as, as they refer to it. Um, 70% of the files, this is a very high number, uh, had issues with regard to the credentialing files. And they noted that credential files reviewed contained uh, a single recommendation and where multiple recommendations are required. Uh, so important to follow that if you are ACHC. And some, and I, I should note that whatever your policy is, even if you're not ACHC, uh, make sure you're following your policy and have uh, a minimum number of, of peer references uh, for every applicant. And some individuals had been credentialed at another facility within the corporation, but the files did not include documentation specific to that center. So I think what they're talking about here is larger organizations that didn't maintain their credential files on site. And they also noted some situations where individual files lacked a current unexpired state license, where the DEA registration card was not current, where there was no evidence of malpractice insurance, of current malpractice insurance, where there was no evidence of a criminal background check. Now, this is a requirement of ACHC, but your policy might also require that. And again, if your policy is required, you need to do it. Evidence of current board certification, if it is required, uh, National Practitioner Data Bank and OIG queries, uh, evidence of current competence, uh, and assigned attestation to complying with the bylaws, mm-hmm. as well as a request for to be granted specific uh, privileges and a letter signed by the governing body, including the decision, the scope of privileges granted, and the duration. So some of the similarities between the two, I was very surprised mm-hmm. at the the uh, percentage. Triple HC didn't provide a percentage number for all of mm-hmm. their findings, so I wouldn't be a bit surprised if it was the, the same. But again, that's the whole reason that we did that conference the last couple of days, yeah. so really uh, recommend that you... Uh, uh, listen to that, as well as some of our free podcasts where we talk about credentialing. So some of their tips, they, they just reminded you to review the relevant ASC policies annually to ensure that all required items are listed and use this to develop a checklist of all items required for privileges to be granted. Identify contracts for credential verification if used and for background checks because that's what they do require background checks at ACHC and don't advance the request to the governing body until all the required elements are available for review and add calendar expiration dates for medical staff licenses privileges etc to kind of you know little ticklers to to remind you um, when things are going to expire and I think what they were talking about above if the medical staff is shared with a partner or otherwise affiliated organization, privileges must specifically identify all locations for which the privileges are approved. And I do want to go back to one item. It does say do not advance requests to the governing body. That's a very important thing to note is that your credentialing process has to be complete before you grant privileges to all those providers. And it doesn't matter what your accreditation organization is, uh, that is obviously a requirement. And moving on to quality assessment and performance improvement, uh, they found that 38% of the uh, centers had issues in this area. And examples of the issues that they found is the organization does not have a written quality improvement plan containing any other required elements. That's kind of scary, isn't it? And uh, Or situations in which uh, it doesn't necessarily follow that plan and doesn't track and, um, and have documentation that those um, uh, indicators that are included in, in a quality improvement plan are actually being tracked and trended. Uh, and then um, they indicated that uh, sometimes staff interviewed did not have knowledge required 
regarding uh, quality improvement activities. And I think, Sue, this could also be said for um, medical staff members. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not doing training, as we talked about in our first segment, of your medical staff and a surveyor asks them, you know, about the quality improvement program, if they uh, indicate they you know, are not involved in it or not aware of it, that mm-hmm. that would be a failure of your training. And one of the requirements of ACHC is that you do have to have an annual report of the quality improvement program, uh, which is not necessarily required for all other organizations, though many centers do that. But you do have to have an annual QAPI plan. And uh, ACHC noted that uh, often these plans lack the staff responsibilities, a method of data collection, and the frequency of that data collection. So Mm -hmm. something you definitely need to keep an eye on. And I do want to just um, read their comment on deficiencies, because I think it's a good summary. The quality improvement is a primary goal of accreditation. Compliance is assessed through staff interviews, like you mentioned. So you have to make sure your staff really knows what you're doing to improve things and through document review. Most citations resulted from a lack of a QAPI program or failure to identify performance indicators for all areas of the ASC, including contracted services. And then they recommended at the end here, rather than trying to begin... By defining quality measures for each area, start by auditing the data you're currently collecting and categorize it by service and make sure all areas of the ASC are included and then implement your change incrementally. Simultaneous changes will make it difficult to identify the driver of improvement. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good advice uh, everywhere in, in leadership is, you know, don't don't try to do everything all at once. Of course, it's hard to say. Or it's easy to say that when, uh, when we're sitting here, but when you've got a survey coming up, of uh-huh. course, there, uh, uh-huh. there's uh, not a lot of time to get that ready. Yeah, And, of course, they say to prioritize action in the areas where risk, volume, incidence, prevalence, or severity are high. You know, you want to start with those really important areas. Select quality improvement activities with potential for positive impact on patient safety or your quality of care. Moving on to infection prevention and control, not a surprise that this is uh, one of those areas. Again, 38% of the centers had citations in this area. Um, And examples of uh, surveyor findings included uh, the organization's hand hygiene policy states that staff are to perform hand hygiene before and after patient contact. And uh, upon observation, this was not being done. And uh, also, rust was noted on the casters of of a rolling stand that that holds surgical suction canisters. I don't know why that was specifically brought out. I Though I will state that that I I've seen that you know more than once in in my time, and it's certainly not a good good uh, situation when you see rust on on anything, any equipment in your organization. Yeah. And actually, in their overall summary, they did say that. The program, although it's documented and and there's a lot of written documentation, that they um, evaluate through direct observation and through interviews with the staff, and that the overwhelming majority of deficiencies were breaches in hand hygiene. So even though those specific examples don't reflect that, it sounds like that was a that big, hand hygiene was a big issue. issue yeah. Uh, they also noted that, uh, so this was interesting, they noted specifically that a C-arm equipment was cleaned by a radiology technician mm-hmm. uh, and materials manager in the operating room before the procedure ended. I just want to yeah. tack on to that, that I've seen that quite a bit lately, too, where the staff in the operating room has uh, have not waited for the patient to leave the room before they start cleaning it for the next mm-hmm. patient. So something mm-hmm. you need to make sure that you're doing. And they had a number of tips for compliance. You know, review the infection prevention and control program against the nationally recognized 
States guidelines selected um, to ensure alignment. Uh, include infection prevention and control as an element of regular staff training. Of course, that's a big, big trend here. Uh, <laughs> monitor the hand hygiene compliance, of course, doing surveillance activities. And conduct regular infection control surveillance rounds for equipment and environmental issues like uh, rust, surface flaws, you know, like divots, chips, and separations in your flooring and walls. And dust accumulation to promote a culture of cleanliness. And that leads us into the next area, sanitary environment. And uh, a 50% of centers had issues in this area. And examples, uh, and again, I see this, uh, unfortunately, quite a bit also. Uh, gaps were visible in the seams of the floor. Uh, biohazardous waste containers were uncovered in the biohazard room. Uh, dirty linen from the prior day remained in the pre-op area a day later in an uncovered linen hamper. That seems very specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Residual tape adhesive was noted on the OR table cushions and glass cabinets. Doors and and really tape should not be used in any mm-hmm. of the uh, the areas because of course that's a, a dust collector and uh, you know it, it makes it very difficult to clean mm-hmm. any kind of tape or rust all that stuff that just makes it difficult to do a good cleaning is important and they say no evidence of pest or rodent control services and oh. honestly I didn't know if. Do they have to see evidence of a problem before they're worried about that, or does no, everybody need to have you really need, some type of a contract? Yeah, because it's it's pretty universal that you're going to have some type of pest control issue. Uh, okay. It depends upon the area. You know, I've been yeah. in areas where uh, spiders, I, your favorite uh, insect, of course, mm-hmm. um, sarcasm. Um, yeah. You know, that's uh, prevalent in, in a lot in a number of different areas around here. I think it's stink bugs, uh, given the uh, mm-hmm. their prevalence. You know, and flies, uh, and then of course the bigger rodents like. Uh, you know, mice and rats, mm-hmm. of course, uh, often you, you know, this time of year, mm-hmm. uh, they're seeking warmer places. So uh, you need to have an agreement, even if it's okay. just for them to come on an as-needed basis. I've noted a number of times recently where we've had to bring these pest control organizations in because of a uh, bed bug infestation. Oh, yeah. uh, so that's something to keep an eye out. And they also mm-hmm. noted that, you know, again, that the integrity of the procedure room floor and door was not maintained. You need to make sure that you're doing regular uh, observation surveillance of all all of the uh, the areas for any perforations or punctures, and of course, making sure your doors are properly maintained. And, and then, then your uh, favorite, right? <laughs> corrugated boxes, yeah. Corrugated boxes are stored Always. with clean supplies. Mm-hmm. Again, corrugated boxes. That. For those that are not aware, um, present a, an insect a problem. So mm-hmm. you might do a great job of keeping the insects away or, or scooting them away, but boxes that come in could have larvae have inside mm-hmm. of those corrugated boxes, mm-hmm. and that's pretty common, actually. And you just can't clean them. I saw, and I think. It was actually in a pharmacy consultant's report I saw once where they were talking about, you know, not having um, cardboard. I guess it was in the operating room. And, you know, because you can get blood, you can get anything right. on there and you can't clean it. It's off. not cleanable. Right, right. Um, and they gave some tips for compliance, uh, trained staff, of course, on the policies. Uh, create infection control quality goals related to the environmental conditions, and, of course, conduct regular infection control surveillance rounds for your equipment, et cetera. And lastly, medical records. Um, 54% of the centers were cited for something in this, and some of the examples were records lacking documentation of the name of the healthcare provider or group responsible for administering anesthesia, on the informed consent. And we're talking, uh, and again, this is universal. Mm-hmm. 
that you actually have to name the, the anesthesia provider, not the name of the group. Uh, so the specific name of the individual providing anesthesia. And by the way, you know, I, I we just had a conversation today, a, a center that uh, did not have a separate anesthesia consent, and yet it was a separate anesthesia provider. So, of mm. course, you, you really need to have a separate anesthesia consent nowadays. And the informed consent is not completed by the performing practitioner. The physician only signs the document. The nurse fills in the procedure name and obtains the patient's signature. This is inconsistent with ASC policy. So this is extremely important, and I I really get upset whenever I see this. When I walk into a place and the nurse or sometimes even the receptionist asks the patient to sign the consents Mm -hmm. before the provider even sees the patient, and this especially happens with anesthesia. So the consent can only be signed after the patient has received informed consent uh, from that provider. And the nurse is only verifying that the patient has spoken to the uh, the provider and you know has no further questions if they do you have to that's right it, it's all right for the nurse to ask the patient for the signature but mm-hmm. only after that conversation after that informed consent had yeah. been obtained and they also noted examples where records lacked evidence that the patient received the notice of the patient rights uh, or the advanced directives, that there was uh, uh, incomplete pre-op nursing assessments, that the date and time of the history and physical was not noted, that the time noted on the time out space was missing, um, the time was missing on the time out uh, section of the uh, surgical form. Uh, the RN and the patient's signature was missing on the discharge instructions. Uh, this one I found interesting that a full operative report detailing the findings and techniques of the operation and the pathologist report uh, on all tissues removed during the surgery was was uh, was missing or, or was incomplete. Which I I, I got to admit I don't know that that's generally a problem that I've seen in the past. Yeah. So I was surprised okay. to see that on the list. And the last item that they cited was kind of interesting, a verbal explanation of patients' rights and advanced directives being observed during the registration or check-in process. Uh, however, there was no documentation that they were provided to patients uh, in the reviewed records. So um, often, I think what they're referring to is that there might be a checkbox saying that the patient was given verbal notice, and that yet there was no indication that that actually occurred. So uh, definitely important to uh, to make sure that's done. Now, I... I sometimes get questions about what they mean by a verbal explanation of the patient rights. And unless the patient doesn't speak the same language that the form is prepared in, we're not expecting you to read the patient rights and responsibilities to the patient, but we are expecting you to ask the patient whether they have any questions about it. Now, again, if the patient does not speak the language that you've presented the uh, patient rights and responsibilities in, Mm -hmm. then an interpreter will have to read that document to Mm -hmm. the patient. And so some of the tips for compliance, establish a baseline checklist for the minimum required documentation in the medical records. Educate your staff on the importance of writing legibly. If, if you can't read correctly, then obviously the documentation is not very valuable because you can't exactly tell what they're trying to say. Um, conduct random file audits and implement a verification and record-keeping process to ensure that verbal explanations of patient rights and advanced directives are properly documented on the patient's medical records. So this helps to bridge the gap between the verbal communication and the record documentation. So we hope this has been uh, useful for you in preparation for your uh, surveys, if you're lucky enough to have a survey coming up this year. And with that, let's uh, take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about upcoming events.
In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff, and other events in the ASC industry. So uh, the big event of the year, ASCA 2024, mm-hmm. is coming up in Orlando, Florida at the Gaylord Palms Resort Resort and Convention Center. It's going to be April 17th through the 20th, 2024. We're going to be there doing podcasts. We're going to, I have uh, two speeches I'm doing as well as uh, moderating a session. And we'll probably try to do two or three uh, live, meaning that we'll record them live, sessions. And by the way, if you are planning on going, uh, you know, try to meet up with us and it's a uh, uh, an email, and we'll uh, we'll set you up in our little uh, text system that we have for telling you where we're going to be at what time. And we love having our listeners uh, join us for these these uh, these podcasts. And the Georgia Society of ASCs and South Carolina's ASC Association's Joint Semiannual Conference and Trade Show is February twenty second and twenty third, twenty twenty four, in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Westin Atlanta Perimeter North, and on August fifteenth and sixteenth in Hilton Head, South Carolina, at the Marriott Hilton Head Resort and Spa. And Sue, we know where that uh, mm-hmm. resort is because mm-hmm. uh, we, we go down to Hilton Head. We're actually heading down there in a couple weeks. But yeah. don't worry, you won't miss an episode. I'm sure we'll be recording from down there. And the uh, Louisiana Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual meeting is February 23rd in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, at the West Baton Rouge Conference Center. The Gulf States Conference is June 11th through the 13th, 2024 in Biloxi, Mississippi, at the Beau Rivage Resort and Casino. The Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Center Association Conference is April 27th and 28th in Scottsdale, Arizona, at the Weston Kierland Resort. The Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Centers Quality and Risk Management Conference is April 4th and 5th in Daytona Beach, Florida, at the Hilton Oceanfront Resort. And their annual conference and trade show is July 17th through the 19th, in Orlando, Florida, at the Signia by Hilton, Orlando, Bonnet Creek. And our friends over at uh, Becker's ASC uh, is, are going to be doing the Becker's Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC Conference. That's going to be June 19th through the 22nd in Chicago at the Swiss Hotel. The Texas Ambulatory Surgery Center's Society's annual conference is June 24th through the 26th in Galveston, Texas at the San Luis Resort Spa and Conference Center. And uh, we're hoping to get out to California this year. We had to skip it this last year because of some other conflicts, but the California Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual conference is September 4th through the 6th in Anaheim, California at the Anaheim Marriott. The Tennessee Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's conference is September 12th and 13th in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the Chattanooga. And in the fall, Becker's uh, ASC is going to be doing their 30th annual meeting. That's a big, big one. 30th annual meeting. It's going to be the Business and Operations of ASC's conference, and it's October 30th through November 2nd in Chicago, Illinois at the Hyatt Regency. And don't forget about our upcoming boot camps. The Administrator Boot Camp is now available to register, and that'll be January 23rd through the 26th, 2024. And our second ever business office manager boot camp will be March 12th through the 15th, 2024. And more information about that is available on asc-central.com. On-demand versions of the ASC Director of Nursing, the ASC Administrators, and the ASC Business Office Managers boot camps are also available on asc-central.com. And also, you might be interested in our June 2023 on-demand version of the Multi-State Conference, which is eligible for 16 AEUs and 4 IPCH credits. It's a great conference, two-day conference that was presented virtually and, a great lot, and includes a lot of great uh, 
presentations, including presentations on infection control, life safety, survey preparation, human resources. We provided an introduction to the Medicare ASC payment system, discussion of pharmacy, and staff retention. And please also consider becoming a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program is an exclusive membership website at asc-central.com that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include free access to various virtual conferences, links to resources for ASCs, policies and procedure forms, uh, forms, and fire and disaster drills. And, of course, our now famous weekly drop-in sessions, usually on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. We have a an hour where all of our patron members uh, can get together and talk about things that are going on in their ASCs and, of course, ask questions and we sometimes have, usually have two surveyors on that uh, weekly call and sometimes three if we have our life safety surveyor available. Membership in our program helps defray the cost of producing the podcast, including research staff, travel cost conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. And, more, and for more information, uh, visit us at asc-central.com. And uh, membership is only $25 a month, which is a real bargain for that type of access and the ability to ask questions of surveyors in a, in a very uh, relaxed environment. And we really, Sue, we really do enjoy our Saturday morning sessions. Mm-hmm. We uh, we have a great crowd. So thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. If you found this episode informative, we, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. We'd love any feedback about our episode or ideas for future episodes. Indeed, we get a lot of the ideas for episodes from our listeners. And to do that, send us an email at comments at ASCpodcast.com. We'd like to give a special thank you to our great team here who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor, Susan Cronkite, our executive producer, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team, Sue Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, Jim Masters, Amy Cronkite, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, Christina Norman, and Katie Pearson. We couldn't do it without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms or at our website at ASCpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence, offering a comprehensive and next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights. MedServe, which offers the only digital narcotic cabinet specifically designed and priced for surgery centers, helping standardize processes and compliance, eliminate paper logs and prevent drug diversion. And Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, which is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For information about any of our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCpodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. 
And we'd love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.